darling, don't be shy. How about some tomatoes? Tomatoes are all right for you, aren't they, dear? Fine. They're so good, especially when they're stuffed with chicken. No, I don't think so. You've got to eat something. How about some salad? Oh, bad luck. Some shrimp salad. Crab meat. No, I don't care for anything. Some roast beef. It's just delicious. If you don't mind, I don't think I care for a thing. It's silly to make such a fuss about food. I'm not the one that's making the fuss. You are. Nonsense. Roast beef never hurt anyone. Try a piece. It's nice and rare. That's not rare. It's wounded. Miss Malvane has some silly superstitions about meat. You're listening to Sassmouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. The idea for this episode began with a photograph. It's a candid shot by Jean Howard, who had been commissioned by Life magazine to shoot the biggest celebrity wedding of the year when Linda Christian married Tyrone Power in Rome in January 1949. The photograph captures Ty and Linda on the dance floor a week before their wedding. Ty holds Linda closely with his eyes shut, and a look of total rapture on his face. He's madly in love for all the world to see. Linda, though, isn't swooning over her dance partner, who just so happens to be one of the screen's most dashing leading men. Instead, she ducks out of his embrace with her eyes wide open and stares at someone across the room. Linda is totally consumed by someone else, The picture makes you wonder, who does Linda find more interesting than Ty Power, and who is the woman so aloof in the arms of a megastar? Linda's life story was more dramatic than any picture she made. It has Nazis, a sexy priest, matinee idols, fashion shows, romance, three miscarriages, and traveling with a jet set. If she had wanted to, Linda could have been Hollywood royalty, and not just because she was discovered by Errol Flynn and married to Ty Power. She had the ideal polish and grace that the studios hoped to instill in their contract players with their in-house charm schools. Linda was educated in international boarding schools and spoke six languages. On screen, Linda was a standout even in small roles. In the film colony, she was a tastemaker who could have had the same kind of career as Anita Colby, a former model who became feminine director of Selznick Studios, developing stars in the 1940s such as Ingrid Bergman and Jennifer Jones. Because Linda was so well-traveled, she was never defined by her role in the studio system or her marriage to one of its biggest stars. Hollywood never figured out to, what to do with her on the big screen. Ultimately, Linda was more at home in Europe and settled there at the end of the studio era. Born Blanca Rosa Welter in Tampico, Mexico in November 1923, she became accustomed to international travel at an early age, changing schools often. She adopted the name Linda when she began modeling. Linda's mother, Maria Blanca Rosa, was from a prominent family in Mexico. Linda's father was a Dutch oil engineer. The family traveled for his career from Mexico to Venezuela, British Palestine, Holland, and Italy. 
Although her life was privileged, one incident from her school days prepared Linda for the random cruelty which life had in store for women. In the late 1930s, Linda was placed in a German school in Haifa, considered to be among the best in academics. Her parents did not realize that the school was, in essence, a Hitler youth camp. Linda had refused to join the daily salutes to the Fuhrer, and in turn, the boys called her a Dutch pig. She answered their chants of Heil Hitler with Heil Wilhelmina, the Dutch queen who had been on the throne for decades. One day after Linda's rebellion, six boys grabbed her and held her down. One little Nazi stood above Linda, opened his trousers, and urinated on her. Linda bounced back from the Nazi golden showers, and instead of being shattered by the attack, it forged her resolve to make her way in the world. Soon after the incident, her parents sent her to a Dutch convent, and from there she was sent to another convent in Italy, where Linda developed a habit of interrupting lessons with multiple questions. A curious girl, she tried to puzzle out the logic of theology. The convent sent her twice weekly over to the Jesuits, the intellectuals of the church, who were better equipped to meet challenges from an inquisitive young girl. After several weeks of tutorials, she was asked if the Jesuits had clarified everything. Linda replied that she was just as confused as ever. The problem was, she explained, was that the Jesuit had been so beautiful that she could only stare at him and hadn't heard a word he said. Once Italy entered the war, Linda fled the convent school and reunited with her mother and siblings, and together they took a long route out of Europe through Cairo and Cape Town to America, where they eventually settled in Mexico. During this journey, she met a clairvoyant for the first time. Unbidden, a strange man offered her a reading about her future, all of which came to pass. The man told her she would be severely ill, recover, marry a famous man, and become famous in her own right. Over time, Linda discovered her own gift for second sight, which helped her negotiate moments at a crossroad. In Mexico City, when she finished school, Linda worked as a mannequin. When it came to plans for her future, she was torn between becoming a doctor and a fashion designer. She felt called to the medical arts, but she blossomed among the creatives in the Mexican fashion industry, and she was entranced by the mix of discipline and magic that occurred in the atelier when fabric was transformed into a dress. One night, she went to meet some friends for a drink in the Ritz Hotel, a married couple she knew from fashionable circles. She was greeted by a dashing man, one who seemed to embody the romantic ideal she had for men, which she believed was fair hair and prominent cheekbones. With a convent education, Linda didn't have the same cinema experience that most teenagers had at the time. But even without regular access to the pictures, Linda recognized Errol Flynn. Flynn waged a charm offensive that proved difficult for a 19-year-old to resist. From the moment they met, he swept her off her feet. He pronounced her name correctly, Blanca Rosa. Errol spoke volumes about her beauty and charm. They danced. He invited her along on a holiday she, he was about to take in Acapulco, along with her mutual friends, the married couple, that she had gone to meet at the Ritz, 
Everything would be proper, he assured her. She would be chaperoned. In Acapulco, Linda, who had been half-mermaid in the water from the time she was a girl, swam and lounged on the beach with Errol. In their hotel, Errol and the older couple stayed on the floor above. And one night, Errol swung from his balcony down into Linda's, telling her not to worry. They were just going to talk. It sounds as if Errol reenacted a scene from one of his films, swinging on a vine like Robin Hood, saying welcome to Sherwood on her balcony. They had sex, and it was Linda's first time. She felt emotional and a bit overwhelmed, as you can imagine. Errol was surprised by her reaction and didn't respond the way she needed. He seemed embarrassed or put out and acted as though her first time wasn't a big deal. She wanted to be held close and comforted. Instead, Errol rushed back to his own room. The next day, he tried to make up for it. He was attentive, affectionate, solicitous. Errol told Linda that he would find a way for them to be together. He would get her a Hollywood contract. She believed him. But for now, he had to go back, as he explained one day after a telegram arrived, and his mood suddenly turned sour. He had business in California, but would return. Her mother protested, but after Errol returned with a contract for Linda with his own production company through Warner Brothers, she gave in and allowed Linda to leave. Errol assured her mother it would be perfectly proper that Linda would have her own apartment. Once they arrived in Hollywood, they drove straight to Errol's secluded mansion on Mulholland Drive. The apartment for Linda was a fiction. He wanted her close. If later she decided she wanted an apartment, they would deal with it then. Errol disappeared in the mornings, and when he returned at night, it was always with an entourage of his drinking buddies and yes-men. The men went into the den, poured drinks, and had serious discussions. Since Linda spoke six languages and was always attuned to a new lexicon, she listened closely. Errol's men spoke a strange tongue, a turn of phrase that was made up of profanity and legal jargon. She felt isolated and miserable. One day, she caught a bit of their conference. Linda could hardly believe it. Errol was on trial. That was the telegram that had called him back to California when they were on holiday in Acapulco. Two girls, Betty Hansen and Peggy Satterley, accused him of rape. The girls had filed charges at the end of 1942. Linda arrived in Hollywood in January 1943 when the trial began and lasted through February. Errol had brought her into the middle of his scandal without a word of warning. In addition, Errol was moody and distant. He drank to excess in a morose fashion. One morning, Errol poured cherry brandy over crushed ice, shrugged, and called it breakfast. Linda confronted him and demanded an explanation about his case. Errol was not exactly forthcoming. He offered a truncated version of events. Under 18, they were jailbait, and it was open season on movie stars. Linda decided to stand with him. As a teenager under contract to the man and living in his house, she didn't have many options. Linda was lonely. 
she didn't see much of Hollywood other than the hairdressers, the dentist, and the shops. At one point, he seemed to remember that Linda was under contract. In his memoir, My Wicked Wicked Ways, Flynn included a scene where he discussed Linda's screen names with his drinking buddies Freddie McAvoy, John Decker, and John Barrymore. He felt Welter would never do. Flynn quipped that he always liked Fortune as a surname. Perhaps it stemmed from the roles he played in adventure pictures. But Jack Barrymore was on it like a squirrel with a corn cob, chewing over the host's idea. Barrymore cackled, a drink in his hand. How will you introduce her? Flynn failed to connect the dots until Barrymore took his hand. May I present Miss Fortune? Flynn was mocked for his poor name choice. Like the great egotist he was, Flynn derived the next choice from his own biography. He chose Christian as a surname after his star-making role as Fletcher Christian in the Australian picture about Mutiny on the Bounty, his screen debut from 1933. One Sunday in January, Errol escorted Linda out on the town for the first time since she had been long cooped up on Mulholland Drive. They went to a tennis match. Then Errol declared that he would take her out for a nice dinner at the Macombo, the famous watering hole frequented by the Hollywood elite. Linda was disappointed that he wouldn't let her go home and change. At the hot spot that evening, Linda was dressed for the afternoon. Not an ideal introduction to the film colony. Errol said to hell, hell with it, they can take me as I am. They ate and then he mugged for the press. As Errol clowned around for photographers, Linda realized that it was a performance for the reporters. It was damage con- control ahead of his testimony in court. He was a star being a star, hoping that his image would be persuasive enough to make the public forget about the girl's testimony in court. But reading about the case, Linda resented being brought into the middle of it without any previous knowledge, and she was upset by the testimony in court and what the girl said about him. Linda recalled a conversation she overheard between Errol and his entourage. They complained about the press coverage and what the girls had said, And the men called the girls jailbait, and one of them referred to Linda as another possible problem, the jailbait that that Errol had living in his house. Errol replied that she didn't know anyone and wouldn't talk. Linda was naturally offended at what she heard. And for the record, Linda wasn't jailbait when she lived with Errol, but she was still a teenager. She would turn later in the year in 1943, 20 years old. After six weeks in Errol's house, Linda had had enough. She went to the hairdressers and begged the stylist to help her find somewhere to live. A good hairdresser is probably accustomed to getting requests like this, especially from a woman living with Errol Flynn. She came through for Linda and produced a furnished one-bedroom apartment. Linda moved in with nothing but two suitcases. Back with the trial, the jury came in. The same day that she moved out, the court verdict found Errol not guilty. She was glad for him, but it was over. Errol came to the flat, promised to put her into a better apartment than the dump she moved into. If that's what she wanted, if only she would take him back. He begged some more, 
told Linda he needed her. But instead of taking the easy way out and going back to Errol Flynn, Linda stood her ground, broke up with him, and went to work. She took modeling jobs, and on the side, she took lessons that starlets needed, classes in acting, diction, and dance. She met other girls her own age and felt like finally she was getting to enjoy an independent life in America. Linda moved into a boarding house full of aspiring performers, the famed House of the Seven Garbos, where Ruth Roman resided, among others. She volunteered in the Hollywood canteen entertaining soldiers before they were shipped to the Pacific. She was hired as one of the Goldwyn girls and then did a favor for Virginia Mayo by filling in for her for her stage act of Pansy the Horse, which I told you about in another episode. While Linda was busy preparing for a career on the big screen, her mother had other ideas. Maria Blanca Rosa sent a telegram informing her eldest daughter that she would arrive the next day with the purpose of taking Linda back home to Mexico. Linda needed a miracle if she hoped to stay in Hollywood. Linda's agent succeeded in getting her an appointment with a casting director in RKO on the day of her mother's arrival. Linda took over from there and buttonholed studio executives for a contract. Since time was of the essence, Linda was blunt. She could not follow the usual procedure where a potential contract player made a screen test before the studio decided decided whether to offer a contract. That would take too long. Linda pressed to, to see the head of RKO, Charles Corner. Beating the odds, her lack of protocol somehow worked, and the doors opened to the studio head's office, where Linda pleaded her case. She could act. She spoke six languages, and she photographed well. Corner should take her word for it and give her a contract, today, before her mother arrived. Corner asked how much she needed to live on. Linda replied, not much, only 200 a week. Corner then called a bunch of executives into his office and took a vote on it, with Linda in the room. Mexico's loss is RKO's gain, he assented, and had a contract drawn up for Linda. Unfortunately, other than allowing her to stay in Hollywood, the RKO contract did nothing for Linda's career. In six months, she had one line and one picture, and then RKO dropped her option. Linda returned to modeling, which led to an important connection and a career boost. Modeling hats for Lily Dashay in a fashion show, she met Ida Coverman, the executive secretary for Louis B. Mayer, the woman who had a gift for discovering talent for the studio, finding stars such as Judy Garland and Robert Taylor. Ida Coverman arranged an appointment for Linda with Mayer that led to a contract with MGM. Then Linda signed with super agent Paul Koner. Linda had a bit part with a chihuahua in Holiday in Mexico. She was cast by Joe Pasternak, who said he saw some of her modeling work and had tried to sign her before she went with RKO. Although she didn't have any lines, her appearance made an impression and netted bags of fan mail, which is one important measure for a contract player's popularity with audiences. While she waited for the role... Linda made publicity shots with Ava Gardner, Sid Charisse, and Gloria Graham. 
She took lessons in MGM and studied with Lillian Burns, the drama coach for Metro. Linda had a windfall inheritance from her grandfather. She moved into the Bel Air Hotel, bought a car, and dated Turan Bay. When people talk about life in the studio system, they often assume that the fixers, those men like Eddie Mannix and Howard Strickling, settled every problem for contract players. But that wasn't always the case, especially for aspiring stars. Linda had an unsavory run-in with the police that escalated into a nightmare involving courts and hearings that sent her to prison on three separate occasions for the same offense. She was stopped by a patrolman for speeding and didn't have her license in the car. Then Linda had two strokes of bad luck. One was a vindictive publicity agent from Metro who wanted to get even with Linda because she hadn't been cooperative. And she was stuck with a judge who seemed intent on humiliating a young actress with a five-day jail sentence. On the last stint of her custodial sentence, she was assigned to work detail making sanitary napkins for prisoners, and the gauze sliced up her hands badly. She did the work in the prison library, next to the solitary unit, listening to a woman howl in distress without ceasing. Linda learned how arbitrary the legal system can be. Linda Christian's first screen credit in an MGM production was Green Dolphin Street in 1947. Linda resented her costume, which was a long dark wig and one long fur blanket, which she wore to play Lana Turner's maid, Hinny Moa. In her memoir, Linda doesn't even use Lana's name. She merely refers to her as the star of the picture. She complained about the way the cameraman had shot a close-up of Linda. According to Linda, Lana was jealous and dripped with sarcasm. What do I have to do to get a close-up like that? There's one scene in the picture where the camera captures Linda's face in close-up. It's her only close-up with a look of devious delight on her face. I think it's the moment when Linda decided she would fly to Rome and steal Ty Power away from Lana Turner. All it takes for a Hollywood rivalry to ignite is an understyled hopeful on screen next to a glamorous box office star who begrudges her a close-up. Lana Turner had been having an affair with Ty Power. Lana even flew down to Mexico one weekend to see Ty while Green Dolphin Street was in production. She considered him the love of her life and wanted to marry. In Lana's version, Linda overheard her talking about him on set one day about where and when Ty would be in Rome, shooting a picture on location. After Green Dolphin Street wrapped, Linda made her way to Rome and checked into the same hotel where Ty Power was staying. In Linda's version, she was merely there in Italy taking her younger sister back to the convent school where she went. It was a total coincidence that she ran into Ty Power. Whether coincidence or clairvoyance, Ty and Linda fell in love. Linda's younger sister made an impetuous call on Ty in his hotel room, and he invited the sisters over, sitting there in a red dressing gown, smoking cigarettes in his lavish suite with silk wallpaper and brocade and gold furnishing. During their visit, the phone rang. Ty reluctantly answered. 
Linda claims that it was Alana on the other end asking for a declaration of love, being needy and whiny. And from her point of view, when Ty said the words, I love you, Linda noted that the way he looked at her when he said them, the words were meant for her alone. Ty Power was a romantic at heart, and he fell for Linda like a ton of bricks. They spent four days together in that adrenaline rush that comes with love or lust at first sight. Technically, he was in the middle of a divorce with Annabella. At the end of their Roman tryst, Ty told Linda that things were complicated. He wouldn't be free for some time, so she shouldn't expect to hear from him. She shouldn't write or contact him. He used romantic fatalism to give her the brush off. Linda developed a searing pain in her abdomen and was confined to bed in agony. How could he just turn it off like that or deny what they had shared? Ty was in transit, flying the geek, the plane the studio had given him, which he named after his character Nightmare Alley, his favorite film role. But it wasn't long before Ty came to his senses and realized he couldn't live without her and arranged to see Linda again. The romance picked up steam. Ty instructed his lawyers to throw cash at the divorce settlement and speed things up with a break with Annabella. While Linda waited for the year divorce decree to pass, she moved into Jean Acker's bungalow in Beverly Hills, the one she shared with her partner, Chloe Carter. The spot that served as a love nest for Linda and Ty was later to do the same for Patricia Neal and Gary Cooper. Daryl Zanuck and the Fox studio officials warned Ty away from a public romance with Linda before the divorce was final, but he bristled against their authority and said to hell with it. Finally, they were married in Rome in January 1949 in an ancient church next to the Colosseum with a crowd of 10,000 people outside. Afterward, they had a private audience with the Pope. Linda decided she didn't want a career anymore. She wanted to be a real woman, as she put it, a wife and mother. She put her energy into supporting Ty's career, being a hostess, making a home. And she had three brutal miscarriages before they had their two daughters. The powers had often discussed working together, and finally it seemed to be in the works when Ty set up an independent production company as his contract with Fox came to an end. In 1952, he chose a project that they could do together, The Mississippi Gambler. Linda's second sight went into overdrive. She was consumed by a feeling of foreboding, of disaster. Ty assured her she would play the leading role next to him. It was a shoe-in. She was his choice. There was just a mere technicality involved with a screen test to, to simply satisfy the investors. She had no reason to be alarmed. They rehearsed for the screen test. Linda went through makeup and wardrobe, and the test went off without any problems. Ty seemed content. Then Linda received a call from a producer. They were sorry, but they were going with Piper Laurie who executives felt would made a better test and a better fit for the role. Linda felt devastated, betrayed. When Ty came home that evening, she could sense that he was beginning to put up what she referred to as the Iron Curtain. Ty became closed off, 
distant and cold. Linda broke down. How could he let it happen that way? Of all things, why did she have to hear it from some studio official? What did he have to do with their life together? Why couldn't he have at least told her she wasn't getting the part? Later, Ty assured her it was no big deal. She was overreacting. They would work together again on a different project. One day, she brought friends to the set of The Mississippi Gambler, people who were visiting from out of town. Her friends asked who was the woman in the cast, the one who hadn't taken her eyes from Linda from the moment they arrived. Linda didn't know the woman, and later she asked Ty about the one in the red taffeta gown. He said he didn't know who she was talking about. Linda persisted, the big glacier of a woman on the set. Ty said he would look tomorrow. Linda doesn't name the woman in her memoir. She uses a code, calling the woman a glacier, and later with icy eyes. The astute reader can connect the dots. Linda was talking about Anita Ekberg. If your husband claims not to have noticed Anita Ekberg in 1952, you can be sure that something's amiss. After the picture wrapped, Ty went on tour with the stage play John Brown's Body. He did not want Linda to accompany him. She would distract him from the work. One night while he was on tour, Linda surprised Ty and turned up at his hotel room in some city. Later that night, after the show, once he fell asleep, Linda's second sight led her to a stack of steamy letters from Anita Ekberg in his shaving kit. The the affair that had started during the Mississippi Gambler continued. Ty intended to leave Linda. When she confronted him, Ty tried to explain. He loved Linda, but he wasn't in love with her. He wanted his freedom. He didn't want to be tied down with a family. He had arranged to see Anita after the show that night and invited Linda to have dinner with his new girlfriend since they were bound to meet eventually. Linda invited some male friends for support and Eckberg sat a table nearby and glowered rather than join them. Linda had wanted to leave or file for divorce, but advice from her mother instructed Linda to wait it out. Ty's infatuation would pass. In the meantime, he kept seeing Anita Eckberg. Linda was perfectly cast in the 1954 MGM musical Athena. She plays the society gal engaged to the lawyer played by Edmund Purdom, the man Jane Powell desires for unknown reasons. The picture is a real standout for the way that it treats women's desire. Athena Mulvane and her sisters, named after Greek goddesses, including Debbie, Debbie Reynolds as Minerva, follow a vegan diet, astrology, numerology, holistic medicine, and espouse the logic of a mind-body connection. Pretty advanced stuff for 1954. The Mulvane family are teetotal, abhor tobacco, think meat is poison, and advocate bodybuilding and exercise. The picture's theme is that love can conquer the stars or fate. From the opening scene, where Vic Damone sings for a live audience of teenage girls, the picture shows us a respect for what women want. For example, when the girls rush into the studio, they aren't presented as an unruly mob. They aren't screaming hyenas who swarm like bees. 
MGM took the time to choreograph the way the girls fill the seat. They don't just file in one after another like a military drill. The girls appear to choose a seat and plop down where they want on the end, three seats in, wherever they feel they'll get the best view of the crooner on stage. MGM found a way to make the girls individuals, and the difference shows a respect for the audience. Ultimately, Athena is about the clash of women's expertise. Who will prevail? The connoisseur of taste and style or the new age wise woman? Linda plays a hedonist, a snob in designer clothes. She's exquisitely dressed for any occasion. She believes in Epicurean delights such as roast beef and martinis. Pleasure is her sacrament. Linda's character, Beth Hallison, is the spiritual sister of another character from a 1954 picture. She could have once lived down the Barbizon Hotel hallway from Lisa Fremont, Grace Kelly's heroine, in Rear Window. Both women know how to wear the proper clothes. They know fashionable people. They dine well on delicacies and vintage wine. Their beauty and poise was a passport that opened doors. In another picture, Linda would have been mocked and humiliated for being an elegant snob. But the MGM picture doesn't paint her as a cardboard, cardboard villain. Beth gets in some quality zingers, like the one early on when Jane Powell tries to save Adam's peach trees and asks for mulch ingredients, watermelon rind, wax paper, and fish heads, dry as Melba toast. Linda asks, wouldn't you prefer a cocktail? Linda's character Beth keeps her cool no matter what Athena says. At one point, Athena pretends to be concerned when she warns that Beth is very pretty but shouldn't wear a girdle because it'll wind, she'll wind up with back trouble. Linda corrects her. It's a foundation garment. A woman must be dense or terribly cunning to call Linda Christian fat and in need of a girdle. Linda wears a gray suit that has Walter Plunkett's signature in every stitch when she learns that the lawyer has fallen for Little Miss Weecher. But she takes the high road, no theatrics. When she meets them later at a cocktail party, she needles Athena for her dietary restrictions. Most of the barbs fly under the radar, meaning that they are cloaked in overly polite language that men might not recognize as verbal sparring, such as when Linda offers a tomato stuffed with chicken or a slice of rare roast beef. The Mulvane family health food shop is filled with men who don't seem to do more than dress in body con workout gear, pump iron, and take orders from women, another thing I love about this picture. Debbie Reynolds tells Mr. Universe Steve Rees, stop thinking, it always upsets you. Men exist to take directions and move a giant sack of walnuts. In the best woman's pictures, men are often deeply conservative, repressed, and are slow to respond to new ideas. They are the status quo with a pulse. Such is the case for men of business in Athena. They go positively bananas when Athena and her sisters redecorate the lawyer's house, one of the best scenes in the picture. 
When men throw fits because the drapes, screens, and rugs are gone, viewers get to the aesthetic heart of what it means to create and own a space. The town fathers are as closed and stuffy as the lack of air in the lawyer's drawing room. Jane Powell had fond memories of the picture, except for the director Richard Thorpe's habit of throwing script pages over his shoulder after they shot a scene, like he scattered salt to keep away bad luck. During production, Linda began an affair with her co-star Edmund Purdom, who was friends with Ty as well. Edmund and his wife Tita, a former ballerina, were guests in the Powers' home often. They hosted each other for dinner, played cards, and even went on holiday together. Over time, Linda and Edmund bonded over their unhappy marriages. Tita hated Hollywood and wanted to return to London, and Linda was unhappy over Ty's affair with Anita Ekberg. On the set of Athena, they hooked up in a dressing room or backstage. Debbie Reynolds recalled in her memoir that Ty Power would sometimes visit Linda on set for lunch. One day, Debbie saw Ty pull up in his car. Linda and Edmund were nowhere in sight. So Debbie hopped on her bicycle and went around lots looking for the lovers. Finally, on a back lot, soundstage dressed as a park with a pond, she saw a bush rustle and figured it was them. She called out for Linda, but the bush kept moving. Finally, Debbie tried the candid route and called out to Linda Hey, your husband's here. Linda broke the clinch, smoothed her clothes, and then went to join Ty. Ty knew about the affair at some point and didn't interfere until it became a subject of gossip around the film colony, and then he made a big show about putting his foot down. When their divorce was finalized, the Iron Curtain dissolved a bit. Ty was a victim of the studio system Grind, who was probably restless and unsuited to long-term relationship as anybody who lived by the principle of the next great thing is just around the corner. Ty attempted to console Linda when they split. She was still young and beautiful and deserved a good life, he said. And Linda did have a good life. She traveled. She fell for a Spanish race car driver, a South American playboy. She made films in Europe. In 1962, Linda resumed a romance and married Edmund Purdom, but it was anything but a fairy tale marriage. According to Linda, in an interview available on YouTube, the marriage did not last 24 hours. On their honeymoon, their wedding night, Edmund attacked Linda and gave her a savage beating. He beat her up for making him wait so long to marry. She moved out and never forgave him. But by some legal technicality, she found out 30 years later that the annulment paperwork had never been finalized and was still struggling to free herself from him. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Linda, My Own Story by Linda Christian, published in 1962. Debbie, My Life by Debbie Reynolds, published in 1988. The Girl Next Door and How She Grew by Jane Powell, published in 1988. My Wicked, Wicked Ways by Errol Flynn, published in 1959.